are bound for, we are bound for the promised land. Amen. Isn't that right? I believe we don't have long to wait. I, we are bound for, we are bound for music today. That was beautiful. We are bound for, I, um, we are bound for, we are bound for, I'll have the attention span to learn to play a stringed instrument. Because I don't have it now. I'll leave it there. Oh, come. We're working on presenting a new feature as part of our worship. We're still working on it, but it's called Love in Action. And it's going to be just uh, showcasing various ministries in the church and activities taking place in our community. And so Wes has uh, some things he'd like to share with us as far as some of the outreach that he's involved in. It is interesting that uh, Adventist World Radio just presented an issue of individuals working around the world for Jesus Christ. Well, we're working here. It was about five months ago in which it was on Sabbath afternoon that um, God said to me, since you have now moved to a new subdivision, this is going to be your mission field. We have in this subdivision 96 mobile homes. And we had just heard that another resident was having a Bible study in that area. But because of her illness, she was no longer able to hold these studies. And so we asked permission if Joyce and I would be able to go and take over those studies in her home in this, in this area at the clubhouse. So we began to, to make studies, and uh, it's been now four months in which we have presented the word of God to these people. It's interesting that you begin to say, well, they have some understanding of the word of God, but they really don't. They don't know simple stories. We presented this past week the story of Balaam, and they said, who is he? So therefore, what an opportunity we have, opportunity to, to witness. But the thing is, God has given each of you that same opportunity. He wants you to be a part of his training field, teaching those around us that he has a desire for them to go home. And so therefore, Whatever God is asking you to do, please do it. But this is not the only story I have, but I don't have time to tell the rest. Wes, you're an inspiration. Thank you for sharing that with us. You know, God is just looking for somebody who's willing to say, here I am, send me. And you know, we don't all have to be Pastor Bautake. He doesn't, believe me, he doesn't need more than one. But, uh, but, but, in your own, but in each in our own sphere of influence, God can use us, can't he? And uh, that's why we're here. We're thankful someone shared the gospel with us, and now there's somebody out there that's waiting for us to share it with them. Isn't that true? It is true. Um, we're going to continue our presentation on the sanctuary. 
I want to ask you to forgive me that I have not kept my numbers straight on the sessions. I'm sure that some of you have shared your panic. This is actually session three. <laughs> and what, what, what it is is that I go different places and I throw in something different and so I got the numbers off. So my apologies. So some of you have been asking if you can get copies. I think, Jackie, I don't know if you still have them. And I don't know, maybe we can correct. You might have to come in behind me and correct Pastor Bauti's numbers. <laughs> but, um, but today we're going to take a look at the judgment. As Seventh-day Adventists, I don't know if you're aware of this, the only thing that makes us different than any other denomination is the sanctuary. And the judgment is part of that. Now, some people say the Sabbath. No, it's not the Sabbath. In fact, the Baptists had it before we had it. And uh, this is the only unique. In the Reformation, God, through the Dark Ages, began to increase the light by introducing truths that were lost. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church brings the last piece of the Reformation puzzle with a last element of the Reformation. I don't know if you're aware of that. But, uh, but we are. And what we bring is the, the sanctuary message and the judgment. I hope you're learning through this presentation that the sanctuary is more than blue means this and gold means that. I hope that we're learning that the sanctuary actually teaches us an experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, we're going to put that experience in the context of the judgment. The judgment is something that we often fear but I pray that changes today. Now, uh, there are CDs of these presentations. Uh, please feel free to approach Michael on that. Get copies, copies to share. Um, we learned in our last presentation that what God is after is our sanctification. That what was lost, what was lost in the Garden of Eden, God wants to... Uh, to restore in us. That's what the whole plan of salvation is, a part, is about. And of course, sanctification is setting something aside for holy use. We learned that that process is found in the sanctuary through the daily experience. We learned that every day we come to Christ, the gate is, a, is, is symbolic of Jesus. Every day, uh, we make sure there's no sin between our soul and our Savior. Every day, we recommit our lives to Jesus Christ, every day we ask for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that we can hear Him and share Him. Every day we spend time in His Word, the bread of life, which He provides for us. And every day we spend time with Him in prayer. And in this process, God is transforming our lives. And in that message, I challenged us, if you don't have a devotion life, just give God five minutes. Just give Him five minutes. And I promise you, it won't be long enough for you you will want more. Spend five with God in His Word and in prayer. Five minutes. Now, I'm going to share something, some other things here, and I'm going to come down here to do it. <clears throat> I say this humbly, and as I say this, I say this as us as a people within North America, Europe, probably not so much in Africa or in Asia. But as a people, we really don't know what the loud cry is. We talk about it, we look forward to being part of it, but we don't know what it is. As a people, we're looking forward to the latter rain. Did you know you can have that now? Yes. Do you know you don't have to look for, the, the, for it to fall? And I submit to you, what we saw happening there in the Philippines is the evidence that it's falling. We need to stop looking for some future event when God pushes the button and sends the Holy Spirit. He's doing it now. He's doing it now. The thing is, though, is that the loud cry is always connected 
with the outpouring of the latter rain. And if we don't understand what the loud cry is, can we participate in the latter rain? No. So what we're learning in these presentations is the loud cry message. God in you, the hope of glory. God working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The transforming power of the gospel in the life of a broken sinner is the everlasting gospel. And sharing it is the loud cry. Are you with me? So what we're going to do, we're going to uh, squeeze this a little tighter today. We're going to take a look at the judgment. And then everything we have learned in the daily and in the judgment, we're going to put it in our next presentation. In the next presentation, uh, we're going to find that the sanctuary actually reveals the reason for the delay in the second coming. We, we should not be here. We, sh we should never have seen the 20th century. We should have been out of here. Why are we still here? I don't know about you, but when I discovered that early in my walk with Christ, I said, wait a second. Why are we here? And I began to dig, and I found the answer in the sanctuary. So, that, so we're going to be looking at the judgment today. Um, <clears throat> so in other words, in other words, what Pastor Baute is saying is that as we re understand the loud cry message and we receive it, and incorporate it and share it, we will begin receiving the latter rain. That's what I'm saying. That is how it works. So if you will, as far as possible, please kneel with me. Father in heaven, we come before you, Lord, so grateful for your love. And Father, as we come to you, we pray for the blood of Jesus to wash away our sin, for his righteousness to cover us. Lord, we have no merit. The only thing that commends us to you is our great need, and that's all. Please come, Father. We know you love us, and we know you want to be here, but we also know you're a gentleman, and you don't force your way into anything. We request your presence. Lord, in Revelation 3, you ask us to ask of you not only gold tried in the fire, not only raiment, the white raiment, but also, Lord, salve. Give us salve, Father. Yes, give us gold tried in the fire. Yes, give us your righteousness. But Lord, we need to see Jesus. Give us salve that we may see his love, his purity, holiness, Lord, that by beholding we may be changed. Father, you know the pitiful, broken speaker you have today. And I pray, Lord, that you will not in any way be blocked because of the speaker, but may Jesus be seen, heard, and felt. Lord, you know the needs of all here. You know how they hear and understand and what they need to hear and understand. I don't. So I pray you will provide that now. So please, Lord, shut us now into the secret place of the Most High that we may abide with you. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. You should have your lessons with you. I am going to begin by reading the opening paragraph. Please uh, accompany me silently as I read aloud. And this is actually session three, the good news of the judgment. In the study, we will learn the truth about the judgment. The truth of a final judgment is deeply rooted in the Bible. It is mentioned scores of times. 
Psalmists, prophets, and apostles all bear consistent testimony to it. Jesus also made many pointed references to the judgment. It marks the climax of some of his greatest parables and is the focal point of much of his teaching. The Bible writers had a unique perspective on the judgment. They did not treat it as bad news, but as what? Good news. They did not view it as something outside of the redemptive process, but as part of that process. They saw the judgment as proof that God is a moral God and that the universe has a moral base. They saw it as proof that history is not an aimless and undirected process. To the Bible writers, history was going somewhere. Therefore, they welcomed the judgment with eagerness and hope because it promised the ultimate exposure and condemnation of evil and the ultimate vindication and triumph of righteousness and truth. And it's interesting, when we study uh, the Psalms, we will often hear King David cry out, Judge me, O God. Does it sound like something he was afraid of? No, but today, when we talk about the judgment, we are afraid. We're afraid of what God, the Father, is going to decide in our case. Isn't that true? You know, we can all agree that on October 22, 1844, the judgment began. But beyond that, we really don't know what the judgment is about. Beyond, I, I don't wish to be disrespectful, beyond what, we, what many say about Christmas, you know, Santa Claus's. Uh, checking the list, he's checking it twice, trying to find out who's naughty and nice. And we have, I, we wouldn't articulate it that way, but we really have that kind of a picture of the judgment. I pray today that that will change. Well, let's look first. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look first at everything the Bible has to say about the judgment. Then what we're going to do is we're going to combine that with our understanding of the gospel. And when we do that, the operation of the judgment will come to the surface. So let's begin with question number one. Can we be certain that uh, there will be a judgment? Acts 17.31 says, God has appointed what? A day in which he will judge the world. It's very interesting that uh, most Sunday-keeping churches uh, and the Adventist church are in agreement here. There is a judgment. What we don't agree is the timing. The Bible reveals to us it takes place prior. That day was October 22, 1844. That's when it began. Are you with me? All right, let's take a look at number two. How does Daniel describe the judgment scene when, he, when Jesus moves from the holy place to the most holy place? Now, the text we're about to read, if you and I, how many of you here have ever been to Ascension Rock? Only, okay, about a handful of you. Oh, it's just amazing. We should probably do that as a church. Do an Adventist history tour. That'd blow your mind. Let's, let's think about that, social director. And, uh, and so, if we were standing on Ascension Rock on October 22, 1844, and had read this, this passage, we would have been reading what was actually transpiring in the heavenly sanctuary at that very moment. So let's read it. And as we read it, please pay special attention to the movement that is being described. There's a lot of motion in here. Pay attention to the motion. Daniel 7, 9, 10, 13, 14 says, I watched till the, thorn, till the thrones were what? They were put in place. So evidently, prior to this, they were out of place. And the Ancient of Days was... Prior to that, he was standing. 
His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flames. It's what? Implying what? It's movable. A burning fire, a fiery stream issued, it came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was? What was it before? The books were? Open. What was it before? I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, what? Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. What we are witnessing is the beginning of the Day of Atonement. When Jesus died and resurrected, um, he went to heaven to begin his work of his ministering as our, our priest. So the blood that he shed for us, he ministered here. So the death of Jesus made atonement possible. But for that atonement to be applied, Jesus has to come in here to do it. Now, that is extremely significant. Just the death of Jesus does not atone for your sin until the life of Jesus applies it. Does that make sense? So when Jesus died on the cross, it was not all over. It just made the end now possible and salvation possible for the human race. And now we have a choice to make to apply the blood of Christ into our lives. Are you with me so far? You have no idea what a whopper of information I just gave you. That changes theology all up and down. The, Pastor Ralph, am I right? That changes stuff huge. Anyway, I won't go into that right now. But, but Jesus goes into the holy place and begins to, to minister, mediate on our behalf his blood. But what we just read is that in October 22, 1844, he moved into the most holy to continue his mediation, but now he takes on a new function as judge. Did you catch that? Okay. I didn't hear too many yeses, but we'll go on. If you're reading, if you're reading Great Controversy, remember I gave you a homework assignment, chapters 18 through 28. If you read it, if you read those chapters, this is going to start connecting. Brothers and sisters, if we don't, I'm going to be very kind. We are Adventists in name only. What makes us different is our message. It, it's the message that creates our mission. And if we don't have a mission, I can guarantee you it's because we don't understand our message. Is that making sense? Okay. Number three, who will be brought into the judgment? Second Corinthians um, chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must... All appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, when I was growing up in Los Angeles, it wasn't unusual to see a, a squad car pull up and a couple of officers walk up to a, a neighbor's door, knock on the door, and hand them a subpoena. I had witnessed it. In fact, as I was thinking about that, I actually saw that here in North Carolina too, right here in Hendersonville. Now that I think about a neighbor across the street. How many of you ever witnessed that? You've seen that taking place where a police officer shows up and hands a subpoena. Well, if I opened my front door and then saw two burly officers standing there and they hand me a subpoena and inform me I have a court date, I don't know about you, but that's going to get my full attention. Okay, the first thing I want to know is what, when is the court date and what are the charges against me and where do I go to get a good lawyer? Am I right? Brothers and sisters, you have been subpoenaed. 
and so have I. All of us have our day in court. It is critically important that we understand when, what are the charges, and where's my lawyer. And we're going to learn about that today. Let's continue. Number four, with which class will the judgment begin? 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now, now that's, that's amazing as itself. I thought it would begin with the bad guys. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Not the first phase. The first phase only is for God's people, at least those who profess to be. Now, watch what Peter says now. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, <clears throat> so judgment begins with the house of God and, and, and so obviously what it's saying here is if you're not part of that first part of the judgment, you're lost. That's what Peter is saying. You want to be part of the investigative judgment. That, that's actually a good thing. Okay? And, and we find that those who aren't part of that are part of the judgment later. And we're going to talk about that today. Now, <clears throat> judgment must begin. How does that happen? Do you remember in my illustration that I was this, I am a sinner, I committed a sin. Remember, I placed my hand on the lamb. Do you remember that? This is what Israel did in ancient time. And it was symbolic transfer of the individuals, the sin the individual had to the lamb. Then the individual had to take the life of the lamb, the blood spilt, the priest caught it. So the sin that was on me went onto the lamb, went into the blood. Then the priest took that blood that with the record of sin, and that record of sin was then transferred to the sanctuary. Do you remember that? When I confess that I am a sinner and I ask God to forgive me, my sins go on the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. And it was my sin that caused Jesus' death. Jesus then, through his own blood, when he is in the holy place, transfers the record of that sin there it's no longer on me. The record, though, is still kept there. So by my book, in my, by my book of, my, of life, the sin is recorded, but right next to it in red is written the word pardoned. Okay? You following me so far? So, so then what happens then in the judgment is that an investigation takes place in the book of those who ask for forgiveness to see if they remained in Jesus. It's just, it's checking the genuineness of their commitment to Christ. Does that make sense? Now, every one of us here are sinners in need of a Savior. I want you to open your Bibles. <clears throat> We're going to look at a familiar passage in John chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to read verse 16. Okay, we all know this. In fact, I'm going to ask you to just read 16 with me, and then I'll go on on my own. But John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then we stop there. Now, I'm going to read on. Follow. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Stop. Can you say amen to that? Amen. 
He did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is... What's the next word? Condemned what? Already. What does that mean? You see, when you and I... Now, I'm going to be touching on some controversy here, but I'm going to have to. (laughs) Maybe we can do another sermon on this later. When you and I are born, we are born with a fallen nature. That means that you and I have a natural propensity to evil. I still remember the day when my son started lying. I can assure you, Swan and I weren't at home going, okay, this is how you do it. We didn't do that. Okay, they ju- he, he just, it's, he's programmed, okay? But being born with a fallen nature doesn't mean you're a sinner until you sin. Sin involves a choice. Does that make, this is very significant. Sin involves a choice. You have to choose wrong. Now, having a natural bent doesn't make you a sinner until you make this choice to sin. Does that make sense? All right. But once that choice is made, you come under the kingdom of the prince of darkness. All right? What does that mean? Now, you are totally and completely incapable of doing good. For the right reasons. You are incapable of doing good for them. Now, you may do good things, but you may have rotten motives. And the thing is, until we get this, you and I are totally incapable of doing the right thing for the right reason. You have to understand. Just get over that right now. You have to accept that. Pastor Balte, I protest. What do you mean? Well, I have a neighbor who is not a Christian. He really is generally good. Okay, let's stop and let's address that one for a moment. When the Holy Spirit prompts a person and that person responds to the prompting even though they don't know the source, they are coming under the control of of God. They may not admit they're Christians yet, but they're heading in that direction as long as they don't resist. Spirit of Prophecy tells us if we don't resist, we will be one to Christ. Can you say amen to that? If we don't resist, we will be one. So if you have a, your atheist neighbor is genuinely kind Okay, that brother may not know that the Holy Spirit's working on him and he's responding. Okay? But the, the point is that you and I naturally, naturally uh, have a natural bent to evil and are incapable on our own to make our motives the right motives. Now, I'm going to illustrate this. How many medical people we have in here? Some reluctant medical people. Okay. <laughs> now... Let's pretend, medical people, that I have a tray here and I have all kinds of instruments and I have my little cloth and then I remove the cloth, all right? What's this area called? A sterile field, all right? Right, I'm getting ready for surgery. Can I use this now? You know, one of the greatest dangers in surgery is infection. I cannot use this now. But now listen, let's put our thinkers on. Can't it still perform? Can't it still cut? What's the problem? 
is that everything it touches is contaminated. You and I are like this. We may still be able to do good things, but our motives are rotten. And so our, those works are not acceptable. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. So what has to happen to this knife is that a source outside of it has to take the knife and sterilize it so that its works are acceptable. Are we listening? We need a source outside of ourselves to change us, to transform us, because our, we can't do it ourselves. But unlike the knife, I have a choice on whether or not I will submit to the process. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's take a look now at number five. <clears throat> Who is the prosecuting attorney? Revelation 12, 9 and 10 says... The great dragon called who? The devil and Satan, the what? Of our brethren. Do you realize that God is not the accuser? Do, do you realize that in the judgment, it's not the father saying, oh, I know George, he did this and this and this and this and this. Who's doing that? We need to be careful, brothers and sisters, of not doing that to one another. That's the work of the devil. God is not involved in that. It's the work of the devil. But you know, we have such a warped picture of God that even though maybe we have never articulated it, but somehow in the back of our minds, we're picturing God doing that to us. I don't know about you. I don't know if it's because of my Catholic background or maybe because of the dysfunctional home that I grew up in, but I always pictured God as the big heavy, the guy who showed up when you messed up because he was going to let you have it. I picture Jesus, isn't this terrible? It's like my mom, don't hurt him. Standing between me and the father, don't hurt him. You know, and the father's like, you know, just give me two minutes with him. Is this the picture you have of God? This is the picture the devil wants us to have of the father. I want to dispel that today. Open your Bibles to John 16. John 16, <clears throat> and take a look. I have a message for you this morning from God. Take a look at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. That's the message today. The Father himself loves you, friend. I want to show you another one. Luke 12. Are you there in Luke 12? If you're there, say amen. amen. Luke 12, and I'm going to read to you another message that the Father has for you this morning, found in verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We must not forget that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. My friends, God is not trying to find a way to keep you out of heaven. He's trying desperately to get you in. Amen. Does that make sense? But for him to do it requires our cooperation. 
It's not God, the Father, we need to fear. And I'm going to unpack this a little more. Take a look at number six. Who is the defense attorney? 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. You know what that word also means? A lawyer with the Father who is who? Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus links the human race with the throne of God. He's the link. Jesus, this is an amazing thing that the only way to save humanity is that God gave his son to, the, to our race forever. Amen. Whatever he was before, he will never be again. He came into our world and he, with his one hand, he grabbed the race, the other. He spanned the abyss and grabbed the throne. Jesus is the brother of our race. He is our best friend. Guess what? He's our lawyer. Amen. But it doesn't end there. Take a look at number seven. Who is the judge? John 5, 22. For the father judges. Stop. Let that sink in. Read it again. For the Father judges no one. By the way, if you need more references for that, Acts 17.31, Acts 10.40 through 43, and John 5.27. This is not an isolated text. The Father is present in the judgment. He is the presiding judge, but he is not the acting judge. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Okay, now you're getting this picture? Not only have you been summoned to court, but you just found out that your brother is the attorney and the judge. There isn't a case, there is not a case entrusted to him that he will lose. There's not a case, there isn't a chance in the world that if we trust ourselves to Christ that he's going to lose our case. It will not happen. It will not happen. If we trust ourselves to him, he will. By the way, if you, want, if you want some understanding as to why it works this way, I've given you a couple references there. One is Volume 9, Testimony 185.4, and Volume 6, uh, Bible Commentary uh, 1100, uh, Paragraph 6. And in a nutshell, this is, the, this, is, this is how it rolls. Because Jesus entered into our experience, because Jesus walked in our moccasins, as it were, he has the experiential right to judge us. Are you with me? That's why when the judgment begins, the father sits down, nods to Jesus, you're on. Are you with me? What we're going to learn in the judgment, number nine, excuse me, number eight, <clears throat> is that uh, the judgment is actually in three phases. Right now, we're experiencing phase one. Uh, the phase one is the investigation of the righteous. And... <clears throat> And so, if you, how many here have given their, asked, has given their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay, so your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You ask God for forgiveness. Your sins have been transferred to the heavenly sanctuary. So, so the judgment then begins with us, okay? And so, in the investigation, it's going to be determined whether the individual remained in their commitment to Christ or not. And if the person did uh, remain in their commitment, if they allowed Jesus to remain on the throne of their heart, then, uh, 
then it's going to, yeah, they remained connected uh, in Christ. And, uh, and if not, if they went back on their commitment, their decision, then they are sent down um, to, uh, to the sentencing and executive phase. Okay? We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to flesh this out a little more. But phase two is the sentencing stage of uh, the wicked. You know, I, I, I think I need to change that word to the lost. Because without, apart from Jesus, we're all wicked. Isn't that true? We need Jesus to transform us. I need to just put their lost. Transferred, okay, to the lost. Uh, now, this takes place during the thousand years. After the second coming, when we go to heaven. Now, that's where we get involved. The righteous, the saved, get involved in the judgment process. Okay? This is during the thousand years. And what takes place during that time is the sentencing stage. I'll phase that. I will flesh that out even more in my last presentation. Okay, phase three is, uh, is the executive portion of the sentence, and that's when the, uh, the, the decisions that were made during a thousand years now are put into effect, and the, and the lost are, uh, are, are destroyed. Are you with me? So these are the three phases of the judgment. Number nine, what are the books talked about in Daniel 7, verse 10? The first is the book of iniquity. Jeremiah 2.22 says, uh, yet your iniquity or your sin is marked before me, says the Lord. So every wrong thing we've ever done, every wrong thing we've ever thought or said is all recorded. All of it. The book of remembrance, Malachi 3.16. So a book of remembrance was written before him. Uh, before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. In other words, and we'll, we have another reference I'll look at, but what this book is, it's all the good things we've ever done are written in this book. You with me? The book of life, Re uh, Revelation 3.5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. And again, how many have asked Jesus into their life to be their Lord and Savior? Your name is written in the book of life. The key now is to keep it there. Number 10, what is the standard by which all will be judged? Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14 says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. How many, by the way? For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Now, you remember the book of Isaiah, Isaiah talking about the Messiah. He said that when the Messiah came, he would magnify the law. You remember that? In other words, you know, if you, you know, as we're getting more of these little gray things, those little words are tighter, are, are more difficult to, to read, right? And so we whip out a magnifying glass to make it larger so we can understand what we're reading. And so Jesus came to give us a deeper understanding of the law. Jesus is actually a living demonstration of the law written on the heart. He is the example of the new covenant, what it looks like when the law is written. Don't miss this, y'all. Stay with me. If you get sleepy, you want to walk in the back, do that. You don't want to miss this our whole life. The devil wants to put us to sleep, and I'm walking around to keep you awake, but stay with me. Now, <clears throat> so, um, okay, I threw myself off. Let me get back up here. Okay, so Jesus is the law in living form. You know, we have a tendency of comparing ourselves among ourselves. That is a fatal trap. The only one we should be watching is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Don't say, well, Pastor Baute does it, it must be okay. Well, Pastor Baute may be lost, and you're going to be lost with him. You don't follow me. Follow Jesus. I'm growing too, by the way. So we're all growing. And uh, so, so Jesus is our example in all things. Um, so where did I leave you? I left you in 10. James 2, 12. So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. By the way, if you do a word search and you study the word law, love, righteousness, and holy, you're going to find they all mean the same thing. The law is love. Holiness is love. Righteousness is love. So what we need is love in our hearts. All right, let's take a look at number 11. What will the judgment bring to light? For God will bring every work in the judgment, including every secret thing. So people may be patting me on the back because of all the big offerings I'm giving the church, but maybe that's why I gave them. So the motives for my good things come under scrutiny, right? Our motives. Um, not only that, but every idle word. I don't know about you, but I need the blood of Jesus. I need the blood of Jesus to wash that all away because I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. How about you? Let me share something with you. Until we recognize how big a sinners we really are, we're not going to recognize how big a Savior we need. Your, your, our appreciation for Jesus will grow when we realize how much we need Him. And we need Him for everything. We're in big trouble. We need Him. And He has provided a way out for us. I'm so thankful. Number 12. What is Jesus seeking to accomplish in His followers, the church, through the judgment process? Uh, Ephesians 5, 25-27 says, Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it, with the washing of the water by the word, that he may present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy without spot, wrinkle, blemish. These are sanctuary terms that are used to describe what not to bring in an offering to God because those things represent sin. So what God is saying is he's looking for a church that is no longer living in sin. Are you with me? Yeah. How do you get there from here? Through the daily. By spending time with Christ and letting him lead us. And all the while, he has the right to change us. Does that make sense? You don't look convinced. I'm going to illustrate this for you. The sermon might go a little long. But this, this, is, this is life or death for us. The best illustration for this that I have found is in the story of the Pool of Bethesda. You remember the story? That's a fascinating story. If you look, this guy, the textual evidence is that Jesus showed up on the day he gave up. 38 years he wanted to walk. He tried. Could he walk? His efforts didn't work, but he wanted to walk. God shows up on the day that he finally gave up on his efforts. Isn't that amazing? So God shows up, Jesus asks him a simple question. Do you want to walk? At that moment, the power to do so enveloped him. He couldn't see it, but it was there. 
but he had to make a choice. And so the first thing he had to do was believe that God can pull it off. Then he had to make the effort. Now, in accordance to God's word, God's promise. And when he made the effort, it gave God the right to unleash his power in his life. And he walked. That's the only way you and I are going to be obedient. It's through him working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. My job is to cooperate with him. So when God calls something a sin, we, got, we can't argue with him. Well, we short-circuit the plan. Okay, where did I leave you? Did I leave you in 12? So God's goal uh, is that we no longer are living under the bondage of the devil and living in sin. That's not what he wants. He wants to set us free. Let's take a look at 13. What happens, and this is very important, you've got to lock in on the key words here. What happens if a sin remains on the books? What's the next word? Unrepented of and unforsaken. That's the key here. If it remains there, unforsaken of and unrepented. In other words, I justified my sin. Well, I wouldn't have punched him if he hadn't opened his big mouth. That's still a sin. I can't justify my sin. I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't. That, it's still a sin. Are you with me? So if I leave it on the books, unrepented of and unforsaken, what happens? Exodus 32, 33. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Whose choice is that? Mine. Ezekiel 18, 24. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, all of the righteousness which he has done will not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness which he has uh, guilty and the sin which he has committed, he shall die. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, that really bothered me. I was like, Lord, wait a second. You're telling me that all the good things I did are going to be nullified because of the bad? How is that fair? Remember that in our fallen state, you and I are incapable of doing the right thing for the right reason. If you have good works, if you have good things written on the book of remembrance, it's because you yielded to the Holy Spirit who worked in you and you allowed Christ to live out his life through you. Otherwise, you and I are incapable of doing the right thing for the right reasons. So if there's anything on the books that's good works, it's because Jesus was doing it in and through me. They belong to him, not to me. I have nothing of which to boast. Nothing to brag about. It's all because of Jesus. I just yield it to him. Give the praise to him. Don't give me any brownie points. Thank you very much. Are you with me? So it made sense that he would take it back. It was his to begin with. Does this, this ring? Is this making sense? All right. <clears throat> Number 14, but what if I repent of my sin and have turned from it and by faith have claimed the blood of Jesus as my atoning sacrifice? Will my sin be blotted out and my name remain in the book of life? Isaiah 43, 25 gives us the answer. I, even I am he who blots out your transgression for my name's sake and I will not remember your sins. Revelation 3, 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, 
but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Can you say amen to that? Let's take a look at 15. While the investigative judgment is taking place, what is my part? By the way, is the investigative judgment taking place? Absolutely. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Now, <clears throat> we're, we're to be examining ourselves. You remember that during the Day of Atonement that the children of Israel were examining their hearts. And we need to be doing the same by comparing ourselves to the life of Jesus. How did Jesus treat his enemies? How did he treat Caiaphas? How did he treat Annas? How did he treat Judas? How do I treat my enemies? Is it like that? And if it isn't, then I need to go to my knees and ask God to forgive me, who has promised that if I confess, he has promised to forgive. Isn't that true? If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. He's promised. So, so during this time, as I'm walking daily with Jesus and reading his word, then each and every day, I'm supposed to be comparing my life to his life. Now, let's read the note right below that together. We must search our own hearts and lives by comparing ourselves with Jesus and his law. We are not irrevocably locked into salvation by one initial or isolated act of believing. Okay, we call that once saved and always saved, right? Once saved, always saved. Forgive me for saying this. We have an Adventist version of this. And I'm going to touch on it. But we have an Adventist version of this. Let's keep going. We are called to continue in Jesus. Therefore... Uh, there must be a sustained, persevering commitment to him, a continuous, personal union with him. And this is accomplished by choosing him as our Lord and Savior every day, not just once. Let me share with you what it is, and this might freak some of you out. This is Adventist theology. Go back as far as you want to go, especially originally. There is this teaching now that we're going to go to heaven while we're continuing to sin. And it's made its way into the Adventist church. It is not true. It's really nullifying the power of the gospel. It says more about the power of the devil and sin than it says about the power of God. I don't know about you, but the first time I ran into that, you don't know what I came out of. But when I ran into that teaching, I froze. And I, I said, wait a second. Are you telling me that I've got to live with this until he comes? And then magically, he's going to change me? Well, why doesn't he do it now? Why wait till then? By the way, that actually makes God responsible for all the sin in the world right now. If he has the power to just turn it off, well, why doesn't he do it now? Why wait till the end? By the way, that's a violation of choice. That's not the gospel. Remember that the angels in heaven were kicked out for rebelling. Nobody's going in that way. But God has promised to work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Friend, you can't change yourself, but he can. Ethiopian can't change the color of his skin. Neither can the leopard his spots. But what's impossible for man is not impossible with God. But it requires two things. Do we believe he can do it? And are we willing to yield to allow him to do it? Those choices are ours. Does that make sense? I want to ask you a question. Has Jesus Christ, is there any sin, you don't have to share it, but is there any sin in your past that Jesus Christ has set you free from? Oh, really? About five of you. Come on. All right. 
So here's my question. What's the sin he can't set you free from? And it's the one he, I don't want freedom from. Isn't that right? Let's be honest. <laughs> Let's be honest. Okay, so, so we must search our own hearts and lives. I'm going to reread that again. By comparing ourselves with Jesus and his law, we are not irrevocably locked into salvation by why an initial or isolated act of believing. We are called to continue in Jesus. There must be a sustained, persevering commitment to him, a continuous personal union with him. And this is accomplished by choosing him as our Lord and Savior every day. Consider, if we understand the key importance of the power of what? Of choice. This is the key, my friends. In our day-to-day lives, we will have no difficulty understanding the operation of the pre-advent judgment. We're talking about the role of our will. Okay. Our initial choice to receive Christ by faith puts us in Christ. At the, at the moment of our initial commitment, Jesus gives us the legal right to live forever with him. In other words, this, we're talk, this is the outer court experience. When we come to Jesus and we, we confess our sins that we've committed against him and commit our life to him, that is justification. At that moment, I have the legal right to be his child. At that moment, I am his child. At that moment, there is an order given for an angel to, write, to prepare a crown for you. No exaggeration, no fantasy there. That's how it rolls. That's it. But let's keep going. Because that's justification. Now we're going to look at sanctification. Now we're going to look at the holy place experience. Our sustained habitual faith choices to keep on receiving him keeps us in Christ in a state of perfect security. Number three, conscientiously and deliberately. We must renew our surrender to Jesus' control. That's a voluntary control, by the way. On a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. This is what the Bible means by abiding in Him, 1 John 2.28, continuing in the faith, Colossians 1.23, enduring unto the end, Matthew 24.13, and keeping ourselves in the love of God, Jude 21, and holding fast the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end, Hebrews 3, 6, and 14. This is perfection. You know, you mention perfection to Adventists and sometimes they leave skid marks. And most of the time it's because there's a lack of understanding of what perfection is. I get people upset in my face about perfection and I ask them, will you explain to me what perfection is? And they're like, they don't know what it is. Perfection is when you know God's will and you make the choice to yield to it. Or maturity. Okay? Are you with me? So it's leaving Jesus on the throne of my heart and yielding to his leading in my life. No, I don't want you to marry that person. Yes, I do want you to marry that person. I don't want you to move here. You know what I'm saying? It's allowing God to guide you. I am so glad that I I have learned more and more that God can be trusted. And I've allowed him the biggest decisions of my life and, and the little ones. I've allowed him to leave me. And the times that I haven't, I have the lumps on my head to prove it. But God is love. All his choices are are motivated by love. And so I can trust his leading in my life. And so conscientiously every day, I have to voluntarily allow him to lead my life. I want to illustrate this for you. Um, Alexander, can can I ask you to be a volunteer for me? All right. 
Can you stand right here and just hold this up for me? There you go. All right, let, I want you to pretend that um, rain, being wet, being wet is sin, and I am drenched in sin. And I, I want victory over wetness. And I look, and I see my friend Jesus, and my friend Jesus says, George, walk with me, and I will give you victory. So I come over, and I begin to walk with Jesus. And the more time I spend with Jesus, I begin to notice I'm becoming more and more dry. More and more dry. And pretty soon, I'm completely dry. I am so happy. And I said, Jesus, thank you so much. I'm all dry now. Thank you so much. Have a good day. What I have learned is that victory is never something God gives me apart from himself. Jesus is my victory. And I only have victory as long as I am under his umbrella of his will. Okay, now please notice who's holding the umbrella. So wherever Jesus goes, I have to make the choice to go with him. And only then do I remain under the umbrella of his will. And only then do I have victory. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You know what? I, I want to share something with you. There is a lot of yuck in my past. The day I stop meeting with Jesus Christ, all of that will come back. It will all come back. Victory is never something that Jesus gives me apart from himself. He is my victory. So I have to lead him on the throne of my heart Every day, meet with him daily and yield my life to him so he can lead me and transform my life. Does that make sense? All right. Oh, I want to show you something else. You're going to like this. <clears throat> All right. So I'm, I'm with Jesus daily, right? Every day, I come to Jesus. Every day, I make sure there's no sin between my soul and my Savior. And if there is, I ask him to forgive me, and he's promised to do so. And then I got to make right whatever I've done wrong. Every day, I recommit my life to him. Yes? Every day, I ask him to send me the Holy Spirit so I have the power to obey and also to witness. Every day, I spend time in his word. And every day, I spend time praying for others as well as myself. Now, in this process, as I'm reading the word, there are going to be times God's going to reveal to me Something in my, in my life that's not right. Am I right? Maybe God will remind you, hey, remember what you said to so-and-so? You need to apologize. Or what have you. Uh, maybe, he, maybe, maybe my neighbor let me borrow his rake, and three years later, I'm still borrowing it. Right? I got to give that back. It's not mine. That's stealing. Amen? So, so when the Lord reveals to me, what do I do? At that moment, I come back out here. And I kneel down and I say, Lord, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I commit that to you that I don't want that part of my life anymore. Please send me the Holy Spirit so that I can obey you and I'm going to remain in your word and spending time with you in prayer so you can change my life. Are you with me? Now, if I, if I, oh, maybe I should, let me do this. What, what is this out here? It's a courtyard, but what's, what, what forms the courtyard? The curtain. What color was the curtain? What did the curtain represent? The righteousness of Christ. Put your thinking caps on. As God reveals sin to me, and I immediately run and ask for forgiveness, but I remain in this process, all the while, 
I am covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the message. Now, if I don't ask for forgiveness, I step out of the process. The righteousness of Christ was never given to cover known sin. Does that make sense? But as long as I confess my sin, I remain under that umbrella, under the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? All right. Uh, number four. Now, now we're going to talk about the fear factor. One factor and one factor alone can jeopardize our security and take us out of Christ. That is our own will, our own decision to do things our way. So one element of risk remains, but that lies within ourselves. While no man, no demon, no circumstance can destroy our security in Jesus, we can destroy that security by carelessness, perversity, or neglect. I need to meet with him every day and make sure he remains on the throne of my heart. Isn't that right? That's my job. That's why I share earnestly that if we do not have a devotional life and are spending time with Jesus every day, my hope in heaven is in vain because church membership isn't going to get me there. Number five, accordingly, when our individual cases are reviewed in the judgment before Jesus comes to bring his heart, reward with him. Only one matter will need to be investigated. Did this man and woman continue to abide in Jesus? That's what's going to be investigated. Remembering that an abiding relationship with Jesus is always manifested in a life of obedience to his commandments. We're not saved by club membership. Jesus said, if you love me, keep. Obedience, the motivation for obedience is love. Gratitude to God. Number six, in the end, we pass judgment on ourselves. If you need a spirit of prophecy reference for that, try Desire of Ages 57. You can write that down, Desire of Ages 57. In the end, we pass judgment on ourselves. By the consistent quality of our personal day-to-day -day choices, we are now deciding or sealing our eternal destiny. A godly character is made up of the thousands of individual choices which we are now making in response to the Holy Spirit's prompting. You know, <clears throat> how many of you are aware that there is a crisis coming? Right now, within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the shaking is underway. When the crisis hits us, the shaking out will take place. We have been told that when it hits, the vast majority are going to leave. Ellen White says in volume two, testimony, page 445, from what was shown me, but few would be saved in the end. Not because they couldn't be saved, but because they wouldn't be saved in God's own appointed way. They wouldn't leave Jesus on the throne of their heart. They tried to get in another way. You can't get in any other way. It's only by, letting, by following Jesus. That's it. And so the vast majority are gonna leave. And at that moment, she says, so many will leave, it'll appear there's no longer a Seventh-day Adventist church. That's heavy. Okay? She says, it appears that the church is about to fall. But she says, it doesn't fall. Why? Because as they leave, the Sunday keepers, who up to this point have been blinded to the truth, will then see it, and they will come in to take the places of those who left. Now, how can that be? I'll tell you how that can be. Because... You, right now, you and I are training our minds either to say yes to the Holy Spirit or no. That you mentioned the unpardonable sin. 
that the one sin that God cannot forgive us for is the sin we don't ask forgiveness for. That's the only sin he can't forgive us for. And so right now, we are training our minds either to obey God's voice or to reject his voice. And so as we go along, we're, we're saying no. There, I won't say no. Let's just say there are many because we just heard a lot of Adventists going to leave. are saying no, 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 no. And when the crisis hits, they're going to say no. But all around us, Sunday-keeping churches with members who are living up to all the life they have, and each day they're saying yes, 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 yes. And when the crisis hits, they're going to say yes. Now think about this for a moment. We're living in a time of peace, and so many of our people are saying no to God. But the Sunday keepers are going to say yes when saying so is going to be a death sentence. They're going to stand strong and say, I'd rather die than not have Jesus. Bring it on. I want to stand with that group. How about you? So in the end, I want to ask you a question now. Pull it together. Who closes our probation? We do. Not God. We do. Number seven. At no point in time, either at conversion, during our Christian lives, or at the judgment, does God act arbitrarily to override or manipulate our power of choice. By the way, can you say praise God to that? The decisions of heaven's courts are not arbitrary. It is our decisions that determine the verdict. Heaven simply recognizes them. At the judgment, God takes note of the current quality of our commitment, our current orientation of heart and will, and places his seal of confirmation upon the lifestyle or character that we have consistently chosen. God's verdict in the judgment simply discloses and vindicates the quality and, and direction of our habitual personal choices. I want to ask you a question. Is God the one to fear? Who do we fear? Ourselves. Ourselves. Summary. As free moral agents, we are the architects of our own destiny. Our decisions all along the way are account, not just those in the beginning. An acceptance of Jesus does not make us into robots. The salvation process is not automatic. Our initial commitment to him does not take away our power of choice. We are always free to choose another master. Accordingly, it is not God's future decision at the judgment that we need to fear. It is our own decisions, the ones that we're making now, and they are under our control. Note, these considerations should not rob us of the quiet assurance that all Christians may have. They only protect us from the false assurance of resting comfortably in a relationship that has never existed or one that we have since lost. Make sense? Number 16, when the investigative judgment is done, what verdict is reached? Revelation 22, 10 through 14 says, he who is unjust let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. This is depicting for us the close of probation. By the way, this is very interesting because what this is actually showing is the two far extremes of a spectrum. Uh, wicked, filthy, filthy, 
uh, righteous, what's the other word? Holy? Okay, this is the far extreme. But what's happening right now on planet Earth is that people are either saying yes to the Lord or they're saying no to the Lord. And you're seeing a polarization that's taking place on planet Earth right now. And when the crisis hits us, it's going to accelerate the process. But right now, you and I are heading in one direction or another direction by our choices. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for what? Salvation. Nothing between my soul and my Savior. The note, let's finish the note. The removal of sin from the sanctuary is the final act of the sanctuary service. Thus, when Jesus' work and the investigative judgment is done, the destiny of all would have been decided for life and death. Probation is ended. Jesus returns for his children. And this is just before us. And in our next phase, in our next presentation, I'm going to flesh this part out. Why hasn't Jesus come before now? We're going to look at why Jesus has waited until now. Number 17, is Jesus able to secure my case before the heavenly courts? Are you wondering about that, friend? Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. And those who are what? In Christ Jesus, how often? Daily. Daily. So our next presentation is why Jesus waits. And then the last one will be an overview of the judgment. Uh, subtitle would be Lessons from the End. Here is my appeal to you. Friend, Jesus is inviting you and I to turn our lives over to him. Are we willing to trust Jesus to be our savior, our attorney, our judge, and our friend? Are we willing? Amen. Amen. Give him five minutes. Five minutes each day at the very minimum. We're going to close out now. And 